It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We bring you the latest updates from the front lines, discuss the Cyprus confidential investigation, and I catch up with Yuri Dukoski, CEO of the U Hearts Foundation, a charity that protects and rescues pets in Ukraine suffering from the impacts of the war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 15th of November, one year and 264 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, foreign reporter Maiden Nanu, and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start in the east again. Let's look at Avdivka, and that's because President Zelensky has been talking about it in his nightly address and elsewhere. So he says that Russian losses in the uh, in the ongoing battle for Adivka are likely to undermine its overall war effort. He said that the assaults there had been very intense, but that the defence was key to Kyiv's war plans. He said Russia is already losing men and equipment near Adivka faster and on a larger scale than, for example, near Bakhmut. He carried on. He continued, withstanding their pressure is extremely difficult. The more Russian forces that are destroyed near Avdivka, the worse the overall situation will be for the enemy and the overall course of the war. I mean, yeah, yes, correct answer. I think the best commentary on this at the moment, or very astute commentary, comes from our friend and colleague Shashank Joshi. He's from The Economist. He was interviewed by Ukrainian Pravda, the, um, the, the media organisation. And he was questioning whether, the, uh, whether it's the same fight in Avdivka and whether the um, what Ukraine expended in Bakhmut was worth the gains. Uh, worth a look, Ukrainian Pravda. He's basically saying that that Ukraine used a lot of a lot of the best brigades in Bakhmut that could have been used for the southern counteroffensive, and the additional time that they held out there gave time for Russia to build the Sorovkin line of defences down south. I mean, he's the first to admit you never know with war. You can't say, oh, if that had happened, that definitely would have happened and vice versa. But it's an interesting, interesting point to make. Others elsewhere have said that on the Battle of Ravdivka that it's not just of purely symbolic political value, that it does have huge political value for for Russia, a little bit like Bakhmut. But it, it could be, if not the gateway, then a, a very helpful logistic point or, or waypoint onto other areas in the, in that sector. So it's not just it's not just you know you can't see Ukraine 
expending the blood and treasure there just because Russia is wearing itself down. It does it does have potential tactical, maybe even operational significance as a geographic entity. But you know, it, it's not going away anytime soon. We will continue these debates. Now then, separately, Mr. Zelensky's chief of staff, Andre Yermak, he acknowledged for the first time what's uh, a little bit of what's been going on down in, in southern Herzon. He said that Ukraine's forces there had established a foothold on the eastern bank of the Dnipro River. And rather surprisingly, especially as it was, what, three, only three or four days ago that, that Russian MOD said nothing to see here, Russia has admitted that small groups of Ukrainian troops have established positions on the Russian-held side of the river. So this comes from Vladimir Saldo, who's the Moscow-installed head of Ukraine's Hezon region. He acknowledged the presence there. He said some Ukrainian soldiers were blocked in Krinky, which is the village we've been talking about, about 30 k's due east of Hezon, but across the river, importantly. I mean, the, it's very, very difficult to tell, but the last geolocated footage, as in footage that you can you can show from a reliable source that has been located via, via other assets, satellite imagery and so on and so forth, shows that Ukrainian forces have been moved out of Krinky. I mean, they, they may have been blocked in some directions, but it, they're certainly not being pushed back into the river. Anyway, Vladimir Saldo continued. He said that the Ukrainian forces there were facing a fiery hell of Russian artillery rockets and drones. And then he said the, the, the average life expectancy of a Ukrainian soldier is two days. I mean, quite how he knows that. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, fine. But interesting that they've acknowledged what's happening in, in that area. And it's been happening for some time now. I mean, it's not, I don't think we can say it's a raid. A raid would have a very specific purpose, either to grab someone, destroy some troops, smash up a radar site or something and get out. I think this is more than that. There's been suggestions of armour, armoured vehicles being moved across. We don't think anything as heavy as main battle tanks. You're talking there maybe 40, 50, 60 tonnes. Um, so we don't think anything like that has been able to get across because we think they're coming across on essentially pontoon barges or, or vehicles that can swim. So there's no bridge yet, no pontoon bridge or otherwise. But there are armoured armored vehicles, lighter armoured vehicles that are probably more armoured personnel carriers, battle taxis, than infantry fighting vehicles that are, that are heavier and can take a bit of a punch in, in the fight. So, again, more undoubtedly to follow in the next few days because that's not going anywhere, as in it's not disappearing as an issue anytime soon. Now then, very rarely do we get any comments on figures, numbers of casualties and so on and so forth. So worth noting, I think, that the messaging from Britain today is saying more than 300,000 Russian soldiers have now been killed or wounded since the start of the full-scale invasion. It, numbers from Ukraine have topped that recently. In the last few days, I think they're up to 310,000, but we're not sure if they're, how they're counting it. Killed, wounded, missing, taken prisoner. And of course, you've got the, although we think Ukrainian figures are not wildly exaggerated, you've got to sort of think they're going to err on the side of positivity. So to have a figure there from Britain's MOD of 300,000 Russians killed or wounded, obviously lends credence to the figures that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from Ukraine is putting out and is a stark figure in its own right. So British military intelligence are, they estimate countless more Russian mercenary companies are fighting and dying and tens of thousands of Russian soldiers have deserted but it's almost impossible to get an accurate figure for those bits they say. 
So a lot of this is coming from James Heapy. He's the Armed Forces Minister. So if you like the second in command of the political side of the makeup of the MOD, you've got the Defence Secretary at the moment is Grant Chaps. And underneath him, we have a number of ministers for veterans and procurement and what have you. And James Heapy is the Armed Forces Minister. So he's a very senior official and effectively the second in command. So he said, we also estimate that over 7,117 Russian armoured vehicles, including nearly 2,475 main battle tanks, uh, have been destroyed since the start of the conflict. It means since February last year. I'm being specific on the numbers because, as I say, we very rarely actually get them. He said 93 fixed-wing aircraft, 132 helicopters, 320 unmanned aerial vehicles. That bit seems a bit low to me. 16 naval vessels of all classes and over 1,300 artillery systems of all types have been destroyed. He disclosed the figures in a written parliamentary response to John Healy, who's Labour's shadow uh, or Labour's defence spokesperson. He is the shadow defence secretary at the moment, the the guy who, if Labour were in power, would be defence secretary. Uh, so he'd, he'd asked the question and then the convention is that the, the minister writes back and that's where we got the got this answer from. But as I said, the number of dead and wounded mercenaries is unclear. They are not included in any official Russian army casualty figures and you've got to treat them with a, a salt mine anyway. So very, very difficult to tell that. But I thought it was interesting that we've, we've got a, a comment on numbers. Sticking with numbers, more tanks on their way. Germany has paid for Ukraine to receive another 25 Leopard 1 main battle tanks from next year from uh, Rheinmetall, arms manufacturer Rheinmetall. The order is going to be delivered in 2024. That includes five Berger Panzer II armoured recovery vehicles, which go and drag if you lose your tracks, for example, send one of those things in that can put up with a bit of a, um, a bit of action and get your vehicle back to be repaired. And a couple of driver training tanks, which you also need. Driver training tanks, effectively, is the hull without the turret. So you, you train on the gun separately, then you learn how to you learn to drive it, and then you sort of put the two together. So the driver training vehicles, you don't generally have the gun on it. It's, far, it's too complicated. It's cheaper to produce driver training tanks than use actual tanks just for just for driving around. Now, in a statement, Ryan Mattel said it will also provide Ukraine with training, logistics, spare parts, maintenance, and other support services. So these 25 will be on top of the 30 Leopard 1s that Germany's already sent to Ukraine. And as I noted last week, although I've got, I've got grief for it, but I did note, and I, I repeat here, Germany is currently the world's second largest provider of military aid to Ukraine behind the US. Uh, and then just finally, strikes have continued across the country, particularly in eastern Ukraine. There have been um, civilian deaths um, and injuries. This is from Interior Minister Ihor Kamenko speaking on, on Telegram. There was an attack on the town of Silidove, which is northwest of Donetsk City, and that hit civilian infrastructure there. And this was early today. Um, and uh, yes, there were civilian deaths and injuries there. And I'll take a pause there, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Medna Nano, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, when we were discussing today's podcast and planning it earlier, we realised that there were a huge number of political, economic, diplomatic updates to get to. So thank you so much for your time. Where would you like to start? What have you been looking at on the Ukraine live blog? Yes, yeah, so there was a really interesting report from the Financial Times yesterday about the oil price cap. So you'll, you may remember this was introduced by G7 members and Australia, I think it was last December, essentially as a key economic sanction on Russian oil. So the price cap was set at 
$60 per barrel, which roughly translates as £48 per barrel. However, the newspaper found that the cap is largely meaningless and Russia has routinely bypassed this sanction and it's actually returned to its pre-war levels of $80 per barrel. So in effect, it's been able to get around one of the key economic sanctions placed on it. And one senior European government official told the paper that they're just going to have to toughen up and there's no appetite for letting Russia continue doing this. Well, thank you, Maiden. Let's move to the border between Finland and Russia. This is quite an involved and developed story. Can you talk us through it? Yeah, so this is a bit of an ongoing row between the two countries over the border crossing. So Finland has accused Russia of turning somewhat of a blind eye to undocumented migrants crossing its border. uh, It's claimed that Vladimir Putin is trying to destabilise the country. And so I think yesterday we had some comments from the Finnish interior minister who said that numbers have increased significantly in a short period of time. And they said that since August there has been an increasing number of migrants originating from the Middle East and Africa. The Finnish Prime Minister said this seems like a deliberate decision and they want to take care of the security of their border. And today Russia has responded to that saying it deeply regretted Finland's move to consider closing its border crossing. And Maidna, finally, can you talk us through, I mean, you sent this to me and it's, it's really fascinating and a little worrying, a major new global poll looking at attitudes to, well, so sort of global attitudes to everything really, but there are some specific uh, Ukraine-related topics that jumped out at you. Can you talk us through this poll? Yeah, so this is a new survey from the European Council on Foreign Relations and it's pulled data from 21 countries. It's got some very reputable authors, Timothy Garton-Ash, Mark Leonard, even Krastev, and it looks at 11 European countries as well as China, Russia, India, the US, etc. And yeah, as you say, there are some quite stark findings in it. So one which I thought was quite interesting is that outside of the West, there is little appetite to support Ukraine for the long term. And so of those surveyed, 48% in China said that this was a prevailing view and 46% in Saudi Arabia as well. And for those outside the West, again, the conflict in Ukraine is viewed or appears to be viewed as a proxy war between the US and Russia. And a majority in Russia, which is 63%, believed that this was the case. And 57% in China also believed that the US is already at war with Russia. But if you look at the fight, the respondents in Europe, it was 36% on average. And similarly, in the United States, it was much lower, obviously, 20%. And they are obviously less inclined to believe this view. Well, thank you very, very much, Maidna, for talking us through all of that. I know you have to run back to the live blog. So just a reminder to listeners that we run the uh, Ukraine live blog every single day. Maidna today is running it and brings us the latest news on the Telegraph website. Francis Dunley, can I come to you? Well, thanks, David. I'm grateful to Maiden for covering those stories as it's enabled me to get my teeth into a huge investigation by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and others into Cyprus, the island country at the east end of the Mediterranean near Turkey, Syria and Lebanon. And it's seemingly becoming a base for dirty money and for wealthy individuals to evade sanctions, including, but not specifically, those enabling Putin's 
regime. So to quote from the summary of this investigation, the product of an eighth month project, Cyprus Confidential explores Russia's long-standing hegemony over Cyprus's deeply intertwined worlds of politics and finance. It explains how the mighty European Union has failed to exert authority over Cyprus, an EU member state, or to rein in a banking system bloated by illicit money. It illustrates how, as Russia invaded Ukraine, Russian oligarchs shuffle their riches and undermine Western sanctions designed to cut off Putin's war funding. As Western nations have increasingly used financial sanctions to block the flow of money that other governments use for hostile purposes, Cyprus became a cloak and dagger financial battleground. Now, the ICIJ assembled a team of more than 270 journalists from 54 countries and provided access to leaked records from the mid-1990s all the way up to April last year, including, they say, confidential background checks, organisational charts, financial statements, bank account applications and email messages, the full whack. And on Russia specifically, they found that the Cyprus professional services firms there were working on behalf of 25 Russians who came under Western or Ukrainian sanctions after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, then found an additional 71 Russian clients who have come under sanctions since February 2022, bringing the total to 96 sanctioned individuals. Now, they dive deeper. Among the 104 Russian billionaires Forbes magazine identified this year, two thirds, so that's about 67 individuals, also appeared in Cyprus confidential documents, along with family members as clients of the island's professional services providers. So in short, the investigation has found that an EU member state has been a massive financial hub for Putin's Russia, enabled by Western companies. Now, the government of Cyprus has responded to this investigation today, vowing to tighten controls on its financial sector. But one hopes this will lead to much wider questions about efforts by autocratic regimes and figures associated with them to evade sanctions. This report also looks at Syrians and many others who funnel dirty money into the country. And really such a huge investigation warrants more than a day's news coverage. I highly recommend listeners to read the various different stories that are coming out of this investigation. No doubt there will be more. And as I say, it has major implications, I think, to the broader conversation we're having at the moment about what can be done on the question of sanctions, because evidently there are just too many gaps, uh, too many loopholes that are enabling uh, Putin's oligarchs and other figures around him to profit and indeed to fund the war as well. But in other news further to what Maidner has covered, Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, has acknowledged that Ukraine is in a difficult position amid Ukraine's stalling counteroffensive, but has emphasised that Russia cannot be allowed to win the war. To quote him in full, the situation on the battlefield is difficult, and that just makes it even more important that we sustain and step up our support for Ukraine because we cannot allow Putin to win. Ukraine must prevail as a sovereign, independent nation in Europe, and it's in our interest to support it. But, of course, critically, what that stepping up tangibly looks like remains the key question and weapons support. And the nature of that weapons support is especially on the Ukrainians' minds at the moment, I think. Now, staying on the EU, particularly, listeners will be familiar with Kaya Kallis, the Estonian Prime Minister. And one of Kyiv's most 
vocal supporters on the world stage. We've speculated in the past about her name being touted as a possible future Secretary General of NATO, though this seems to have been rejected when there were those conversations taking place earlier in the year as being a possibility for the same reason that Ben Wallace was believed to have been rejected, namely for being too uncompromising, too hawkish. But she has now proactively said that she would like to be considered for the job once Jens Stoltenberg steps down. So she was speaking at a political com- Politico conference in Washington and responded unequivocally yes when she was pressed on whether she would like to be considered for the role. Previously, she's been much more hesitant to publicly put her name forward. But as I say, her hawkish stance may be too much of a deterrent for some members of the alliance, not least the US. But she speaks for many in the Baltic states who do believe that a firmer stance is essential with regards to the war in Ukraine. Now, I'll just add that other names are being mooted, Mark Rutter being one, and also David Cameron, the new foreign secretary here in the UK, who obviously uh, came as a huge shock. We covered it earlier in the week, but it would mean that he fills some of the vital categories that supposedly have been put forward, which would namely being a former prime minister, head of a nation, as well as, of course, being proactive in the foreign affairs space, which he will be presumably for the next year. So... No guarantees, of course, that will happen, but I think it's fair to say that Britain may well advocate for him being put forward as a possible candidate. And just lastly, David, according to the Financial Times, Ukraine has at last reached a deal with global insurers to provide affordable cover to ships carrying grain and other critical food supplies from its Black Sea ports. This is a big moment for those of us following the grain deal's collapse closely. It solves one of the biggest impediments Kyiv has had, providing financial security that will enable companies to be willing to sail in dangerous waters. So this new public-private partnership was announced yesterday, offering up to £50 each of hull and liability insurance from Lloyds of London firms for ships carrying agricultural commodities, providing so-called war risk cover in case of losses coming from the conflict. Could this be the key to properly unlocking the Black Sea ports? It's too early to say, I think, but evidently solutions are being worked out that may make the restoration of a deal with Russia unnecessary in the short and long term. So watch this space. But that's where we are, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom Francis and Maidner. Are there any final thoughts? Dom Nichols, can I start with you? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, David. I, so I wasn't, uh, wasn't here yesterday. had a, an emergency lunch. I had to, had to go and attend. But I hear that Francis mentioned yesterday about a conversation we had with a senior Western official. And you'll note today that in, our, in the paper today, we have a column from, um, from Ben Wallace talking about AI. And I think it's, it's, it's very interesting to hear views from people who are obviously very cent- have been very central to this, essentially the, the military and political aid to Ukraine over the last, last few years, but particularly since February last year, particularly when they, um, when they feel slightly less shackled by, um, by the sort of collective responsibility and, and they're able to, able to um, make their points. And so I think whether or not you like the man's politics, I think he's a sensible voice or a way of thinking about some of these things. And as I say, now he's somewhat freer uh, to speak. It's worth, worth paying attention. I mean, one of the conversations we were chatting yesterday, and he said many, many other times before, he's questioning when and if Ukraine will mobilise society. Now, by doing that, you basically trash the economy because everyone's fighting and not essentially working. But as he said, this is an existential fight. And in 1940, when when Britain stood 
stood alone against Nazi Germany. No one was worried then about about trashing the economy if you're in an existential fight. It took us until 2005, I think, to pay off the Second World War. So, you know, these are big decisions, obviously. But if you if you, if it is the existence of your country, then uh, these are some of the decisions you have to take. But the point he was making about mobilisation was not that everybody downs tools and, and get, goes and dresses like a tree and, and runs east. He's pointing out that the model that, that is much more prevalent in the kind of Scandinavian and Baltic countries where everyone does a certain amount of national service, which may only be a few weeks, and then has, a, has ready access to a gun and, um, and, a, and a command structure and a means of, uh, of being mobilised in short notice. And I think that's quite an interesting idea, and I think we'll, we'll hear more of it in the next few months as things, I think, are going to pause, slow down, particularly over, over winter, stand fast, whatever's happening down in Hezon. I think that's one we definitely need to keep an eye on. But I think it will be interesting to see whether or not that call, you may remember from General Zaluzny's essay last week, one of his five requirements was reserves, whether or not this will cut through and this idea that you need many more tens hundreds of thousands of, of people available at short notice to be able to be mobilized whether that will gain traction so a bit of a long way around saying worth keeping an eye on what ben wallace is saying now that he's uh, now that he's leaving politics we think and he's a columnist for the telegraph and yeah some of the ideas that he throws up that aren't of the immediate here and now are nonetheless very very interesting for when we start thinking in the medium and long term about what's happening here thank you dom francis and maidner Last week, I had the opportunity to catch up with Yuri Tukarski, CEO of the U-Hearts Foundation. U-Hearts is a charity that protects and rescues pets in Ukraine suffering from the impacts of the full-scale invasion. We've actually spoken to Yuri several times before on this podcast, and when I was last in Kyiv, I visited the U-Hearts offices and interviewed a friend of the podcast and U-Hearts employee, Angelika Babi. It was fascinating to meet Yuri in person in London and discuss his work over the past 20 months and to understand more about the challenges facing his organisation heading into winter 2023. Here's our conversation. Well, Yuri, it's really nice to meet you properly. Uh, thank you so much for coming into the Telegraph offices. Just for our listeners, would you introduce yourself again and tell us about your foundation? Thank you, and thank you for having me uh, again, David. So my name is Yuri Tokarski, and I chair the UHARTS Foundation, and we work to help pets and animals suffering from the war in Ukraine. We've spoken quite a few times on this podcast over the past 19, 20 months about your work. How has it changed in, in, in that time? What new things do you find yourself doing and what challenges remain for you and your colleagues? Well, I think, David, the most important part uh, is that we shifted from mentality of a sprint to that of a marathon. Now we understand that uh, we are in this situation for a much longer run than we had hoped. And that means that we have to uh, more carefully plan our resources, also to look for more mid- and long-term commitments from our partners to keep doing what we are doing, helping animal shelters, helping volunteers who are rescuing cats and dogs from the front lines, um, helping them with the medical treatment, vaccinations, spay and neuter, so shift more from the short-term perspective of uh, disaster response to more a long-term perspective of helping uh, the welfare of animals in the country in general. How um, have you found it in terms of raising money? We know the idea of war weariness has been talked about a lot in the past few weeks. Is it something you're seeing in terms of donations, in terms of interest from, from people outside of Ukraine? 
Yes, we see that happening too. Also, we see that people's minds tend to shift to other regions of the world, to other crises, and that's only natural. And for us, it's a challenge, of course, in this marathon situation to maintain that level of interest and that level of support to what we are doing. We are very lucky to have a few committed institutional partners, including a couple of companies here in the UK who are with us in the long term. But we also rely a lot on private donations from individual people, from companies that would allow us to expand our more cash-intensive projects, such as pay and neuter, such as adoption, uh, such as rabies vaccination. Are you still finding, I mean, are you finding the number of animals you're helping in Ukraine, has that gone up or gone down in the past 19 months? I mean, you mentioned you've shifted from a disaster response to a sort of more marathon, you know, more long term. So is the demand still really high? How's that been? How's that changing? Yeah, what's changing is the geography of the aid, the focus of our support. So usually animals would be evacuated from areas close to the front line in the east and in the south of the country. They would first be taken to shelters that are closest to the area, but then they are operating at double their capacity. So whenever there is a chance, animals would be evacuated and sent further to the west. So that's where we observe that a lot more uh, animals have recently been uh, relocating uh, to western and central parts of the country. And that's where we see an increased demand uh, for aid from shelters located in that area. But in terms of numbers as such, the capacity or the amount of animals in care of shelters uh, has gone up by roughly 60% since the war began. Uh, We are working as much as we can to promote adoptions, but still the number, the sheer volume of the crisis is so big that... uh, In the foreseeable future, we will still have to focus a lot on supporting animals that are in the shelter care and in the care of pet volunteers. You mentioned the adoptions. When when people are adopting from your foundation or from others, where are they coming from? Is it usually inside Ukraine or is it Western Europe or or, or further afield? We have a couple of cases where adoptions would go abroad, uh, but mostly uh, they come from within Ukraine. We uh, support several shelters with uh, an initiative that's called uh, Adoption Days, where they would showcase uh, their animals that have been prepared for adoption during one or a couple of days where everybody can come visit, take a look, and uh, a lot of people are already walking out with their new family member from there. So uh, the majority of adoption cases are still happening inside Ukraine. What have you learned um, doing this work for the past 19 months? Is there, is there stuff that you've discovered about, about the industry, about, about the animals themselves? I would say uh, incredibly resilient people, incredibly resilient animals too. Pets and animals tend to suffer from the war in a way that they cannot express verbally or directly but the effects on them tend to be, in many cases, much more severe on their psychology, on their behavior. The post-traumatic stress is, in many cases, much more severe than for humans because animals do not understand what is happening around them. They are just scared. So it has been incredible to see the amount of efforts people are putting into the welfare of animals as well. 
in the situation where we have thousands and dozens of thousands of people affected by the war who need uh, support, who need psychological rehabilitation, the fact that uh, initiative like ours can rely on volunteers who invest their time to rehabilitate and to support the animals is simply incredible. Last time, we, well, we, as I said, we've spoken many times really over the past 19 months. You had a big um, drive for uh, events and ideas for Christmas as a very important time for supporting animals. It's obviously a lot colder and people are thinking maybe a bit more about, that, about their own pets. Do you have anything special planned for this Christmas? What should our listeners know? Yes, we are planning a winter preparedness campaign for the shelters that would be focused on equipping them with warm houses for dogs, warm blankets, focusing also on injured and sick cats and dogs. We would be adding to these packages also food, vitamins and various treats uh, that we receive as donations or that we procure. So we would be hoping to cover over 200 shelters across the country with this campaign. And we are also partnering with a couple of major retailers in Ukraine to offer, again, as we did last Christmas, an opportunity to purchase an, a package that would be prepared, available to purchase online and would be sent to a specific shelter as designated by the buyer. So we will be announcing that soon. And I hope the Telegraph would also publish the link to the campaign. Before, of course, we've spoken about certain case studies, would you like to tell us about any of the, the animals that your foundation has helped that particularly stick out in your mind that you remember? And I guess it'd be interesting to hear a bit about, about their stories. I mean, as you said, it's a marathon now, not a sprint. So what is their story over the months? Where are they now and how have they rehabilitated? We have a lot of cases where the animals that are rescued from the streets are injured because they are not prepared to live on the streets and provide for themselves. In many cases, we would have animals who would be pregnant and would be close to giving birth and still injured. And these very complicated cases that require immediate treatment, uh, a lot of resources to be put together from evacuation to finding a proper clinic to arranging a quick surgery with a positive and happy outcome for everybody are the best that we get to encounter. There was a dog that I remember very well rescued from the Kherson area when the flooding happened as a result of blowing up the Novakakhovska Dam a couple of months ago. And she was trying to escape from the water, from the high water on the roof of one of the houses. And our volunteers were able to pick her up. Usually dogs resist very often people who are trying to rescue them. They are biting because they don't know what's happening. This one was actually putting herself into the hands of the volunteers with a lot of trust because she knew that that's her only chance and for her puppies that's the only chance to survive. So she was happily, with. it's a story with a happy end. So she was evacuated to the nearest veterinary clinic there had to be an emergency surgery to save. Unfortunately, not every puppy was uh, saved from uh, the lot, but the majority of them survived. And uh, they moved to uh, a shelter in cave and now are uh, in good care, uh, waiting for a good family to come and adopt them. 
You mentioned there the, the volunteers. Could you tell us a little bit more about the team you work with? Who are they? Where in Ukraine are they? What, what kind of age profiles do they have? We work in the offices in Kyiv and in Lviv, the capital and the city, major city in the west of the country. And we have regional coordinators spread in the east and in the south of the country. Uh, we have various profiles of people. We have project managers, administrators. We have people who take care of logistics. We have people uh, who are veterinarians by profile, by education, by work. What unites them all is that they are passionate for pets, passionate for animals. And even if they have different backgrounds, it's uh, something that is always defining their attitude to do good. And that's also a wonderful thing because it's a very emotional industry. It's loaded with emotions, not always positive, because you are working often in the middle of the crisis and it takes toll also on people. So we did have cases where we had to give a lot of people rest, some space to recover because of the burnout. And they always come back to us because this is also such a rewarding area where you can see your results, where you can see the results of your work uh, in, a very short, uh, in a very short period of time. So I'm very proud of my team. Uh, we have not uh, lost a single staff member in the past two years. Our team is only growing and also our volunteers who work for us in the regions People who volunteer their time at the shortest notice, ready to load up their car, ready to go into a place where a disaster is happening, such as was the case with the Kachovka Dam in the Kherson area. It's amazing to see, really. I'm very proud of them. Yuri, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important uh, for our listeners to hear? I guess one of the important priorities that we would like to focus in the next couple of months and perhaps there are ideas in the audience how to advance that in the best way would be to expand operations in spay and neuter and vaccinations. Um, usually this work is done by the local authorities, by the local governments, and in several areas they, are, they simply don't have uh, the capacity to do that anymore. So we rely a lot on a cooperation with local actors, mobile surgery clinics, veterinarians who are able to go into most remote or most dangerous places and perform surgeries there. So if you are able to help with these operations, you are very welcome to donate to our foundation. If you know of groups who are doing this kind of work, volunteer work in the UK or elsewhere in the world and would be ready to and willing to come to Ukraine, we would be very happy to partner up on that. Uh, we are already cooperating with uh, one group of veterinarians from the UK called Worldwide Vets. They have a mobile surgery truck and they bring volunteers from the UK to operate on animals. And we would like to really expand on that. So any ideas uh, how to bring that to a larger scale would be very welcome to us. And if people do have those ideas, where can they find you? What, where should they go? It's best to reach out to us through our social media, through our website, uhearts.com, or our pages on Instagram and Facebook. Yuri, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. 
To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 